Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, folks. Welcome to the Toga Podcast. My name is Nick Mendel, and I will be your host today. In today's episode, we have a great interview with my mentor in aviation, Tim Sparks. But before we get to that interview, let's go ahead and go over some quick aviation news that has happened in the world of aviation within the last week. In March of 2019, the 737 MAX... Uh, was grounded due to different problems based off of two crashes that happened. The grounding was lifted in November of 2020, uh, where the FAA felt that it was safe after different technology was put into the aircraft to prevent any more crazy crashes from the one system that had malfunctioned. However, um, within the last week or so, um, 106 new jets have been grounded. Um, Now, these jets have been recently produced, And there was found to be an electrical problem with these recently produced aircrafts. So that does present a new problem now. Um, However, as it only affects 106 of the total jets, between 8,000 of them, um, it doesn't seem to pose too big of a problem or too big of a threat to the 737 MAX now that all of its main problems are out of the way. So real quick, I'm going to recap what this uh, episode brings for us. Um, This is a sit-down interview with Tim Sparks. Tim was a professional in the aviation field for most of his life. Um, Started out with aircraft maintenance um, at Purdue University. Uh, Was actually in the ROTC program there for the Navy. Um, Then went on, as he'll talk about, to do a lot of great things within the world of aviation, uh, within the world of military aviation as well. Then onto the civil side of things later on in his career. Um, I actually met Tim through the EAA, which is the Experimental Aviation Association. Um, I was given an Eagle flight, it's called, with him, where he took me up um, on, I guess, a my first general aviation experience, um, flew me around, let me fly the airplane, and kind of just talked to me about aviation as a whole. He's been a big influential part of my aviation journey and has always been there if I ever had any questions within the aviation journey. So he's a big part of my, my aviation uh, experience, I guess, so far. So it's really good to talk to him. Um, he actually helped consult on this podcast uh, about, you know, good good formats and everything. So it's a really great interview. Um, we I think we went on for about 38 minutes, 35 minutes. Um, so there's a lot of great knowledge for first-time aviators and people interested in getting into the field. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and throw it over to the interview. Welcome back to today's show. Today I'm joined with a very special guest. Uh, this was my mentor in my beginning in aviation, actually took me on my first general aviation flight. This is Tim Sparks. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for uh, talking to me. Of course. Well, thank you so much for coming on. So a little bit about Tim. Uh, I met Tim through the EAA, uh, which is the Experimental Aviation Association. Uh, we met in the Eagle Flight program. Um, I reached out within the organization. Um, basically, it's an organization where you can um, sign up for these Eagle flights and a member in the local chapter will take you up flying and kind of show you what's going on and give you some, some good resources forward uh, on, on the correct way to get into aviation. Um, so let's get into it. So one of my first questions for you is how young were you when you first got started in aviation and, and how did you get started? Well, um, I can tell you that uh, I've had airplanes ever since I could think about it. So I'm one of those few people that uh, have a dream as a, as a child and uh, run off and actually get to live their dream. So um, I've been pretty much an airplane nut since uh, I was tall enough to walk. So 
uh, yeah, so I was born in 1954, so probably uh, within four or five years of that, I was uh, well indoctrinated into airplanes and absolutely fascinated by airplanes and what they did and the people that did it. Awesome. Awesome. So did you get your, any licenses before you're starting within the military? Well, yes, I did. Um, I guess I can back up because I had that goal. Uh, first and foremost, from early on, uh, my focus was always been in aviation, get, get into aviation somehow. Uh, you know, you, you start at the bottom rung of the ladder. So it's whatever you can do to get in the door. Uh, I was fortunate enough that I got picked up for a, a Navy ROTC scholarship to attend Purdue University. Now, I would have had the finances. My parents uh, were dedicated to making sure that I had an opportunity to get a college education. But the Navy ROTC scholarship provided tuition, books, and some other things in exchange for uh, service obligation after you get your commission. There was no guarantee that I get in the flight program uh, once I got out of uh, college, but the requirements to fly in the Navy uh, were that you had to have a college degree and then be able to pass a physical. Um, I had less than 20-20 vision starting out, so I knew that there was probably a chance that I would not be the pilot, but probably the other guy in the airplane. But I was willing to do what it took to get into an airplane. And uh, as part of that, Purdue was, or the ROTC's program was pretty uh, open about what you could study. And so the first two years at Purdue University, uh, I studied uh, airframe and power plant mechanics. And I actually got a two-year degree, associate degree, in airframe and power plant maintenance and got my certificate from the FAA having taken the tests and the practicals and all that sort of thing. So I'm a licensed airframe and power plant mechanic. So what that led to was one summer uh, after my uh, uh, sophomore year, I went out to the airport here in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, and Jim Torpy was the owner of the Cessna dealership. This would have been 1974. And I asked if I could get a job there. And he said, yep, you can pump gas. I don't remember what I was getting paid, $1.65 an hour, $1.85 an hour. But because I had a license, he probably knew I wasn't going to do anything incredibly stupid, like put jet fuel in a, in, a, in a gas engine or gas fuel in a jet engine sort of thing. When I fueled airplanes, I knew enough about them to uh, keep my distance from things that are dangerous and ask questions if I, uh, if I didn't understand something as opposed to just trying it out and seeing it, seeing it because I knew that airplanes were expensive and easily broken. So uh, I think he had confidence in me to do that. So during the course of the summer, I um, took flying lessons and soloed in, in June of 1974, I think. So I completed my uh, pilot's license uh, during college um and got my license i think about 18 months later something like that uh requirements basically uh have not changed at least on paper they haven't changed but all the things that are required now are much more complex so getting your license in 40 hours which i think is what the uh, the prescribed minimum number is is a little bit unrealistic more likely uh, 45 or 50 hours depending on how aggressively you go through flight training Okay. So actually, when I showed up in the Navy, I had a pilot's license. Okay, and did that did that help, or you know, were they more likely? Um, I guess they wanted to train your they train you their own way, obviously. But 
did did coming in with that that prior experience help you in the navy or or what would you have to say about that well i i think it definitely helped um you quickly realize that the navy uh the joke has, has always been and i think anybody that's been in the service has always known whatever service you're in but we called it the right way the wrong way and the navy way <laughs> and regardless of what you what your previous experience was uh this is the way you're going to do it when you're in the navy now what it did do was clarify for me that in fact yes this is what i wanted to do i wasn't absolutely terrified in the airplane uh i could function in an airplane and so when i started uh flight training uh and again remember i mentioned that my uh, vision wasn't the best so i actually was studying to be a naval flight officer nfo those of you familiar with uh, uh, flight of the intruder or top gun i was the guy in the back seat telling the pilot where to go and so i actually completed my initial uh, primary flight training in the navy as a navigator if you will or um, <laughs> depending on which airplane you're in you could be the radar intercept officer uh, electronic countermeasures officer but anyway i was not the guy that was moving the controls i was the guy telling the pilot what to do and it makes a pretty strong team when you got two guys in the airplane pulling on the rope the same direction conversely uh if the two of you are not getting along together uh, uh it doesn't it, you end up with less capability um you quickly get those differences ironed out and uh are very effective in operating the airplane okay Okay, so you said the Navy way. <clears throat> Obviously, you know, on the civil side, it seems like things are much different, at, you know, the right way, the wrong way, and the Navy way. So what was one of the main differences you saw, if you could tell me, about, about the way the Navy trained their pilots compared to what you would go through with a normal, you know, normal PPL or, or something like that? Okay. Um, I think the, uh, the big thing that uh, if, you're, if you're looking at general aviation, there are um, – ways to go about getting your license. You can just kind of piecemeal it along. And a lot of people don't understand that the time requirements for getting your flight, yeah, 40 hours, well, that's just a work week. You know, you gotta be able to get your pilot's license in a week. Well, that isn't gonna happen. First of all, your flights typically are gonna be an hour to hour and a half long. There's going to be the pre-flight portion of the flight, and then there's gonna be a post-flight. And the big thing in the Navy was that it was very, uh, compacted and accelerated. So on any given flight, you had a syllabus, an outline of all the things that you were expected to be able to do. Now, some of them would be um, uh, items that would be reviewed, things you'd already done on a previous flight. The next thing would be introduction of uh, new ideas, and maybe it would be a demonstration of a maneuver or something that you would be expected to complete, or it would be kind of a no fault if you screwed it up sort of thing. Yeah, it's okay. You get to go try it again. In the in general aviation, uh, if you just go to a uh, uh, to an airport and ask for an instructor, it's highly unlikely that you'll have a regimented uh, syllabus of things to um, to study between flights. But the other thing is that the joke has always been that the worst classroom in the world is a uh, is an airplane moving through the air at 100 plus miles an hour. <laughs> so a lot of the a lot of the uh, training is done before the flight and then after the flight during the post-flight debrief. And I would say that in, in general aviation, the pre-flight and post-flight do not go into the depth that the military does. And remember that in the military, flying is your job. So you're 24-7 um, preparing for a flight, 
uh, getting ready for the next flight, um, studying uh, vast amounts of material that clearly if you had a second or if you were a, a, a civilian and showing up for flight training, um, you may not be able to afford that, that, uh, that time. And that's something you have to really consider is the time uh, portion of the equation. Um, despite what you might see online, I would say conservatively speaking, uh, you need to probably plan for an hour and a half flight, probably not even counting your transit to the airport. So you live, um, you know, 20 minutes from the airport, or maybe you live an hour. So it's an hour to get there. It uh, maybe 30 minutes of pre-flight, uh, an hour and a half flight, maybe 30 minutes of post-flight uh, debrief, and then the hour drive home. So you basically used up most of your day. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then... Uh, skills that you acquire are very fragile and you can lose them very quickly. So it's important that you plan on scheduling two to three flights a week. So you can see how this quickly adds up. And of course, then weather becomes an issue. Um, and so you may end up canceling one or two flights during a week. And you may only a week, but ideally what you'd like to do is fly two or three times a week, um, do a lot of study. And of course, the quality of the instructor is is a factor, and and frankly, you don't have uh, much way of gauging that if you just walk in off the street. Mm-hmm. Now, there is one other way of going through flight training in the uh, civilian world, and they actually have a flight academy. Uh, those typically are more expensive. It's a much more regimented uh, flight program, and those are typically where you see guys who are um, really going to be dedicated to going to the airlines. Uh, it's a little faster pace, um, more, like I said, more regimented. There's a syllabus. You'll know exactly what's expected on the, on each flight. Uh, you'll have a dedicated instructor. You'll have uh, various uh, phase checks as you go along to make sure you're meeting minimum requirements as you go through the training. So uh, overall, there's um, – and I'm not saying you, you can't do it in any of those ways, uh, but but – the uh, uh, actual flight academy. Uh, I think there's one up in Indianapolis from here, uh, maybe mm-hmm. a couple. Uh, but most of these are uh, what they call part one, uh, part 91, which is basically uh, you just walk in off the street. They've got a, uh, airplanes for rent. They've got instructors there, and they're going to take you out and do instruction. So there's pitfalls and advantages to each one of those. Mm-hmm. But uh, and you have to realize the shortcomings. And the other thing is that oh by the way aviation may not actually be for everybody yeah mm-hmm. that, i guess those that you're talking about would be like the lift academy in indy and, and you know the atp which is kind of like i guess nationwide is is more of those flight academies so i definitely right and then, yeah awesome okay yeah yeah so then if you could what was one of the what was one great thing about about being a military aviator and what was one thing that you were not it, it wasn't so great Okay. Well, um, uh, like I said, you, you kind of, you, you kind of picked a, uh, I don't know that I'm a unicorn, uh, but <laughs> I'm one of those guys that all I wanted to do is fly high, high performance jet aircraft off an aircraft carrier since I could, could stand up and walk. So, um, that was my goal. That was always my goal. Now, remember that, uh, as I, uh, stopped talking about my flight training, uh, I am really unique because after I was a, um, I was actually described, my, my job title was electronic countermeasures officer. So I was 
flying in an airplane called an EA-6B Prowler, which is a four-seat airplane. There's only one pilot in the airplane. There's three of us. The other three guys are NFOs, Naval Flight Officers, specifically called ECMOs, Electronic Countermeasures Officers. And I flew in that. Uh, in the front, I'd be like the co-pilot talking on the radios and navigating. And in the back, I'd be running the jammers to put, uh, if you will, snow on your TV or static on your on your cell phone, that sort of thing. So I did that for my first tour, which was uh, three years long. And then I went back and went through flight training a second time. And that's when I got my wings of gold, became a naval aviator, and I continued my career uh, flying the A-6 Intruder, which is a all-weather attack bomber, uh, again, retired airplane, uh, no longer in the fleet, but a lovely airplane, um, very capable, very deadly, um, and a two-man crew requiring a close uh, interoperability between the people. So. The thing that I liked about naval aviation was there's nothing better than flying an airplane on and off an aircraft carrier in the daytime. When the weather's nice and the ship's going into the wind and you have the ability to fly an airplane with that level of precision to get it on and off an aircraft carrier, uh, it's actually fun. Uh, the first maybe 50 to 100, maybe a bit more terrifying than most, but once you get, once you get the hang of it, it is absolutely the best thrill ride you can imagine. Going down the catapult, zero to 150 miles an hour in three and a half seconds uh, going from 120 miles an hour back to zero as you land aboard the ship um, uh, so anyway that that to me was the part that the, the flying was absolutely uh, spectacular and the fact that you go out and fly at 500 miles an hour across the ground 50 feet above the ground um, and uh, and and basically being that part of the system that uh, perfect, uh, protected our country. Uh, power projection was, was the mission. This is the 80s when I was doing this all the way into Desert Storm. So the downside would be the uh, family separation. I mean, when you're out on an aircraft carrier, you don't get to bring your family with you. Yeah. Uh, lack of communications back then, of course, everything was done by mail. Nowadays, wow. I understand they have uh, internet and email and that sort of thing for communicating with your family, but mm -hmm. it's a tremendous toll on your family. And you have to have a very stable relationship in your family, and your wife has to be um, uh, it's very supportive. And I was, mm -hmm. I was fortunate and blessed that I think my wife had a pretty good idea what I was getting into uh, from the beginning. Uh, maybe it was a little tougher than she might have thought once she got into it, but uh, it was, it's a tough life for family. Um, and but the the people that you dealt with, everybody top notch, and mm -hmm. um, you know very challenging, very unforgiving uh, type of environment that you operated in. Um, the downside, of course, is aviation, and the result is that uh, people uh, make mistakes and people die. And mm -hmm. um, I have 25 of my friends from uh, from the military that that didn't get to retire. They uh, yeah. they died. Uh, and, and three of them are in, let's see, three of them are in combat. The rest of them are in peacetime. So that's a pretty terrible um, number if you look at it that way. Yeah, that's... Uh, in, my, in my airline flying afterwards, um, we've managed uh, to have only one accident killing both crew members. So mm -hmm. uh, the ratio, I guess, is, is better in the, in the civilian world, but it's still, uh, again, Aviation is very unforgiving of poor decisions, uh, and certainly you end up being lucky a lot of times. Yeah. 
Yeah, and obviously, you know, that's that's that seems like that's one of the big downsides of military aviation. <clears throat> obviously, whenever you're you're flying at, like you said, 550 miles an hour, 50 feet above the ground, there's a lot more, uh, a lot less margin of error. And obviously, the the margin of error in aviation is small the way it is. Um, but you know, and obviously, uh, that seems like that that's definitely a downside. Um, so you said you spoke a little bit about your, your, your transition to civil aviation. Uh, what was that transition like? And, you know, yeah, what was it, what was that transition like from, from the military side to the civil side? Okay. So, um, I retired in, uh, 1994. Uh, actually I retired at 18 years, which typically you hear guys retire at 20. Uh, I was part of the, uh, uh, Cold War bonus, if you will. We won the Cold War. This is just shortly after Desert Storm. So they allowed me, if I choose to, if I wanted to leave, I could leave early and I would get full retirement benefits, which was key to the whole uh, opportunity, the carrot that was dangled in front of me. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was looking probably at a desk job for the remaining two years of my uh, time. And I said, no, I can go ahead and get out and get, get headed to the airlines. Um, so I started in about two years before I actually left the service is when I started getting serious about the airlines. Uh, again, even though you could, uh, you could be an, an astronaut, space shuttle pilot, you could be anything you want in the military, but unless you have the credentials that, uh, that the uh, FAA is looking for, mm -hmm. you're just like anybody else with a prior pause license. So uh, you go through a series of uh, tests um, that are administered and you get basically an equivalency. So I had roughly 4,200 hours of total flight time when I left the Navy over 900 carrier landings and um, went to uh, uh, a course where they taught us um, some of the differences. And, and there really are a lot of differences, about the, primarily about the rules uh, of operating airplanes, much different than the military. Um, some of it kind of silly. Um, some of it not so. Um, remember that in, in general aviation, you're not going out to fight a war. You're just trying to get from point A to point B and do it in a safe uh, manner. So the perspective is different. And so I went to several uh, uh, classes where they taught us uh, how to prepare for the tests. And I took uh, the written exams and then had my logbook verified by the FAA. So when all was said and done, uh, I I had uh, uh, gotten the FAA rating called an ATP, Airline Transport Pilot, which I did the written uh, and passed the physical required. And then you had to do a simulator session, which I did while getting a type rating. So a type rating is something required on any airplane that weighs more than 12,500 pounds. So uh, the 737, any of the airliners basically mm -hmm. require a pilot to have a type rating. And that's specific training in that type of airplane. And fortunately, all that training or almost all that training nowadays can be in a simulator. The simulators oh. are just unbelievable nowadays. The visuals mm -hmm. and the motion and everything are really, really very authentic and um, really uh, quite good. And so literally, when I went to get my first type rating, I did it in a 737. And I had a FAA, a flight inspector, in the simulator, and I did all of my training in the 737, and I came out of that with a 737 type rating. 
The reason why I got a 737 type rating was because at that time, Southwest Airlines was hiring pilots Mm -hmm. and you had to have a 737 type rating before you could get an interview. Oh, wow. And so I kind of killed two birds with one stone. So I positioned myself for Southwest Airlines as well as I got the practical portion of my ATP license. So then I was a fully qualified ATP pilot Mm -hmm. in the 737. Uh, Subsequent to that, uh, when I went out to start chasing the airlines, uh, basically you, you send out letters to everybody. And, um, I was very fortunate that, uh, at that time I got, uh, I sent letters to United Delta, uh, Northwest and federal express and UPS were the majors. And then I also, uh, sought, um, as well as Southwest. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mention that. Mm-hmm. And so after that, I, um, I sent uh, letters out to corporate flight departments. Again, having never flown any of this big stuff, uh, but I had the skill set that the Navy gave me, the discipline to fly planes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that was made me an ideal candidate. And so um, while a couple of the other airlines called, um, I, uh, the first people that actually had me come to an interview was Federal Express, and I came in for an interview. Uh, again, they, uh, part of the interview process is they have a simulator and you get in it and they have you basic, do basic aviation stuff. Mm-hmm. Ironically, this was a 747 that I was flying. <laughs> I'd never seen a 747. I couldn't sell 747 or anything else. And I sat down in the seat and basically the, the, the simulation was the airplane is already in flight. You're on a cardinal heading. I think we're going north at 250 knots. The power was already set, and everything was already uh, all ready for me to go. It was just frozen. I sat in, and he said, "He said, when you're ready, uh, tell me when." He said, "And I'll say go." And so at that point, he'd say, "Okay, turn left, uh, heading uh, to the west." And what they're looking for is to maintain airspeed, altitude, and roll out on the assigned heading. So you did a base, a very basic, very simple. Anybody that's familiar with instrument flight would not have a problem at all flying this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing is just managing the uh, power and that sort of thing. You didn't have to do a landing. You didn't have to do any emergencies. Oh, wow. It would just literally fly the thing around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that. Um, and as I left, the guy's walking me back into the interview room. And I said, well, I guess you're not walking me out the exit. So I guess that means I did good enough. And he said, yes, you did good enough. <laughs> and uh, so, so then a few weeks later, I got a letter from Federal Express and then the the rest is history. I, I showed up in Memphis uh, for flight training in June of uh, 95, where we went through two weeks of ground, uh, ground school, then uh, about another month of simulators, probably a simulator, uh, probably every other day, I think. And then mm-hmm. you'd have, you'd only do uh, six days in a row, and then you'd have a day off. Uh, very genteel compared to the military as far as the pace. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you were introduced to, um, a lot of stuff that you'd never seen before, particularly the 727. I was, uh, getting my flight engineer rating in that airplane. That's where you started out at FedEx. It was a three man cockpit. So mm-hmm. the, I often said that the backseat of that 727 could be, uh, that flight engineer role could have been covered by a motivated high school graduate <laughs> because it has so little to do with, so little to do with flying. And uh, it was more procedures. Um, and really the big thing about the airlines is the standardization. Everything is scripted. Everything is standardized. 
if I were to show you a, uh, uh, and they, for training purposes, they, they record a uh, simulator session where uh, you have an engine failure on takeoff roll. And, and you watch this and there's no screaming, no hair pulling, no big lights, no, nothing else. The guy, one of the guys says engine failure. And then you just rotate off the ground. It's all scripted. Everything is scripted. And if you can keep your composure and you know the script and you can stick to it without interjecting other things, you'll do just fine. And again, the flying per se is not necessarily the thing they're looking for. They're mm -hmm. trying to get you to be as standardized as possible. So um, I, I'm not sure I answered your question, but hopefully. Oh, yeah, you definitely did. Definitely, definitely appreciate that. Um, right. Yeah. So obviously, you know, you've been in aviation your whole life. You've, you've been loving planes since you've been, uh, you know, as tall as you can stand. So, and this is a very broad question. You can take this wherever you like. If you, what, what is your favorite or what is one of the best stories in aviation that you have? I know that's very broad. Wow. Well, um, uh, I think, uh, well, highlights, I guess, would be um, that I spent my entire career in the Navy uh, preparing for war. And in uh, January of uh, 1991, I was involved in Desert Storm. In fact, I flew at that time I was flying, I was back, remember I mentioned that I started out as an NFO. Mm -hmm. I was an ECMO or electronic human measures officer in a EA6B. And then I went and flew A6s and I won't go into the reason why that happened, but I did that for a period of time. I flew about 1300 hours in A6s. And then I ended up back in uh, Prowlers uh, for my uh, last uh, couple squadrons. And so Desert Storm happened and I uh, was the senior naval aviator in my squadron i was not the co or exo of the squadron they were um, uh, they were uh, ecmos and so i flew the first da6b into iraqi airspace uh the morning of december or january 17th 1991 and we went to baghdad and um, so the, i i take a lot of pride in that that i was the i was if you will the leadership the pilot leadership for sure, mm -hmm. not necessarily in the squadron, but, uh, but I had an influence on the other pilots in the squadron. Mm -hmm. And I feel very proud of the fact that we managed to do our missions um, and we uh, executed them to the best that we could. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did lose any of our airplanes. Uh, unfortunately, in our air wing, we had, um, let's see, an F-18 was shot down the first night of the war, oh, wow. uh, a gentleman by the name of Scott Spiker. Uh, call sign Spike was shot down and uh, was apparently killed shortly after he was captured. Oh, no. uh, and his whereabouts were unknown for many, many years. I think 2009 was when they finally found uh, remains of him. So, uh, and then the next night we lost uh, two A6s got shot down. So in my air wing on the Saratoga, I would say that it wasn't a walk in the park. There was mm -hmm. absolute fear, um, but there was also determination to do the job. And so, yeah, the fear was there, but you're so focused on doing the mission and not letting the other guys down. I mean, we had uh, 15, 20 airplanes that mm -hmm. I was flying in support of, and you didn't want to be the guy that screwed it up. And you, that would let other people down. People counted on you to do your job. And if they didn't, uh, people got hurt. People got 
airplanes got shot down, that sort of thing. But uh, all in all, um, uh, I was very, very proud of that, that fact that uh, we were able to go to war uh, in, with my squadron anyway, uh, although losing the three from the, from the air wing. So that's, that's a, a highlight. Um, remembering the last flight I had in the Navy was also a, a, a real highlight. Um, uh, getting a job at FedEx and realizing that my uh, future and financial security were pretty much taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, and realized that there was a lot of lot of advantages to continuing my career. You know, it, if you were a real entrepreneur, you could do that and be an airline pilot because you have so much time available mm-hmm. when you're not flying. Because strictly all you're doing is going to work, flying a plane uh, to point A to point B, and when you're done, you're you're off. You're on your own time. So everybody, a lot of people had side hustles. I don't know that I had a side hustle. I had a lot of hobbies and, and interests that um, were actually interestingly aviation related, but I knew guys that were real estate brokers. I knew a guy who was going to law school. I knew wow. a guy who was a consultant for not-for-profits, got his wow. MBA, and, uh, and, and, and um, this guy was a graduate of the Air Force Academy, uh, flying for, you know, left the, uh, left the Air Force and had gotten his MBA and worked for not-for-profits, helping them uh, find money to run their not-for-profits so everybody's got a little bit of, everybody's got some sort of deal going on because mm-hmm. you have enough time uh and you have the finances if you get to the majors that that you can do a lot of these things that uh might not present themselves with a uh, a nine-to-five job yeah that makes sense awesome and then one last question for you <clears throat> So would you have, you knew my position, my position was, you know, I, I never knew the correct way to get into aviation. I didn't know how to finance and I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anything. I was just a kid that looked like watching airplanes fly. Um, do you have any advice for someone in my position that I was whenever I was in middle school and high school, um, you know, for, for their passion in aviation? Do you have any, you know, tips, pointers, um, you know, direction that they might be able to take um, to be able to fulfill their aviation dreams? Well, what I'll tell you is something that will sound an awful lot like your parents. And that is you need to study hard in school and keep your nose clean. Um, if if I, I flew a young man the other day and he said um, he had pretty good grades in school. And I said, well, you know, there's other people that don't have pretty good grades. They have great grades in school. And so if I'm looking at the two of you, if I'm looking at your resumes and I'm comparing the two of you and I get a choice between a guy with pretty good grades and a guy with great grades, who do you think I'm going to pick? So that being said, that having good grades in school is important in any field. And so we need to really try. I know it's very difficult when you're trying to figure out an isosceles triangle or uh, memorize the certain uh, rules in chemistry or math or whatever, but you really need to strive to excel in all those things. And it's not necessary that those are things that you need to know to fly an airplane. And by and large, they're not. But those that you have the demonstrated ability to do the mental, mental gymnastics, if you will, of operating an airplane and the desire. So that's the first thing I can tell you. The, the, the next thing is, um, uh, you know, keep your, keep your nose clean. Um, you know, remember that I guess nowadays we have an electronic tail that can come back and get you in trouble. So uh, behave, behave yourself, 
do, do what's right, not what you feel like at the moment. I know that's very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and have a goal. So uh, that's what I would tell guys is, is have that desire. So then you got to figure out how you're going to finance uh, flight lessons. Well, um, I think I may have said it's around ten dollars to $11,000 to get your license, mm-hmm. plus the time if you go in the civilian world. I think if you went to Purdue University and went through, went through their professional pilot program, I believe that that same license is uh, more towards $20,000 for essentially the same piece mm-hmm. of paper or, or plastic. I guess now it's like a credit card, but <laughs> it will cost you a significantly larger amount of money, but you're going through a professional program. So, um, but those guys, the guys are trying to get in the airlines. Mm-hmm. And so you absorb a lot of student, student loan debt, I believe, to go all the way through the just the pilot side of the program at Purdue is around a hundred thousand dollars. I think it may yes. be slightly less than that, but uh, it's it's an awful lot of money. Mm-hmm. And you're betting that you're going to be able to get a job as a pilot. And I know that there's an ebb and flow in pilot hiring and that sort of thing. So I wouldn't be so worried about that. If you want to fly airplanes, get yourself into a program. Um, like I said, I I cannot speak. Uh, more highly enough of getting in the military and learning to fly. I know that maybe the military isn't necessarily the popular thing and, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, you can get killed, but yeah, you can get killed walking across the street to get a candy bar. So um, I never looked at it from that, that point of view that that might be too dangerous. I just looked at it like they have given me a skill set. They have trained me to the nth degree. I'm out there. And yes, there'll be times when I have to rely on all that background, all that knowledge. And maybe if you will, a little bit of bravery uh, to to do the right thing or uh, to uh, or to to maneuver an airplane mm-hmm. uh, and have the discipline to do that. So uh, the the military is a great way to do it. It isn't for everybody, uh, but they will treat, teach you how to fly airplanes. And when you get get those wings of gold in the Navy or wings of silver in the Air Force you absolutely know that you've accomplished a considerable amount that so few Americans of that, that age are, uh, have, have accomplished. So, uh, I would, I, I can't recommend uh, the military enough to people. I know it's a little scary, a little daunting, uh, but if you can pass the physical and you have a college degree and the, the advantage of not necessarily going to a university to get a pilot degree is because, you might need to have another option. Guys get sick all the time. Guys get mm-hmm. cancer. Guys get uh, in a motorcycle accident, um, whatever. So you need to be able to do something other than fly airplanes because it's possible that you could get injured in some way, shape, or form mm-hmm. or, you know, develop asthma. or uh, You know, there's just literally thousands of reasons why you may not be able to pursue your dream as a commercial pilot or somebody getting paid for paid for uh, for flying so uh I, we really talked about flying for a living um in this discussion uh but there is the flying for fun uh yeah. and it's that's a pastime so that's the other part of it now you can but but you still have to get through the front door and you have to get the the initial private pilot's license and then once you get that you realize that that license is only a means of uh it's a license to learn is what they'll tell you you get mm-hmm. that you get your temporary certificate and, your, and the, the designated pilot examiner will look at you and he hands it to you and kind of looks at you like, um, 
you know, kind of gives you the kind of sideways glance. He says, you understand that this is a license to learn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it really is because there are lots of things as a brand new, newly minted private pilot that you just don't know. And mm-hmm. so you need to tread cautiously and you need to manage your risks and you understand your risk and you need to have somebody, uh, it's helpful to have somebody. And that's where the EAA uh, chapters or AOPA, if you get affiliated with either one of those, there are people there that you can either read online and see what their experiences are, or you can call them up and go, hey, I'm looking at this kind of weather. I've got this mechanical issue with my airplane. What do you think? And it may be one of those that says, yeah, you don't want to fly at night with this problem, but you could fly in the daytime without any problem. Mm-hmm. There's, Like I said, there's countless resources, and I just congratulate anybody that wants to try and fly. It mm-hmm. is not for everybody, but it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, way to spend a life, I would say. That's, that's, I guess that's my, my final thought. Awesome. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate you having here, having you here to talk with us today. And obviously, thank you for all your service you did in the military. Uh, without people like you, we probably wouldn't be here today. So we, we really appreciate that. And uh, again, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Well, uh, good talking to you and spreading the word. And uh, hopefully that maybe we get we, we plan a, uh, a seed in somebody's uh, uh, mind that maybe this is something they can do. Because uh, I can tell you that if you want it bad enough and you're willing to not take no for an answer, um, I think you can have success in the, in the aviation, whether it's just being a, a, a general aviation pilot and just flying for fun or pursuing a career in, uh, in, in flying airplanes. And remember, there's lots of jobs around airplanes that, that need to be filled as well. So mm-hmm. you may not be the one that flies the plane, but you might be a mechanic, you'd be a flight dispatcher. There's literally dozens of other jobs, air traffic control, lots mm-hmm. and lots of jobs. So there you go. Yep, that, that's the goal. Hopefully we can you know, find somebody in either my position or in, in any position that, that uh, find a passion with it and, and can hopefully find a way you know, in their own way into the aviation field. So thank you again. You bet. That was Tim Sparks. Obviously a great interview. Got a lot of insight within the aviation field as he's experienced so much. And that will conclude today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.